Welcome back, coming Brainiacs to the podcast, talking about George Moore. Um, Georgie, Georgie, Georgie. Uh, uh, er, er, sorry, I was not prepared to press start, but I pressed start. Okay, chapter 10 we're up to. Um, Swim says, oh, shut up, George. You can't even be a decent house guest. Edward is obviously very devout. You were even raised in a Catholic household. Just accept the meatless Friday and go to the Mass on Sunday. Quit needling everyone around you. You even describe the caricaturing of people, real people, in your novels in unkind ways. You are the male equivalent of a mean girl. Mean girl her behavior is often relational aggression or alternative aggression, an indirect but harmful form of social bullying. Unlike physical harm, those who engage in relationship aggression want to make a person look bad to others to bring them down or take away what the other person has. got a similar thing in Australia called tall poppy syndrome, the desire to be the tallest poppy, and the way to do that is by subtly... And while maintaining complete uh, sort of plausible deniability, tearing down your uh, peers, friends, family, acquaintances, it really has no... uh, Anyone you know, you wish them well. You wish them all the success in the world, up to a ceiling. And that ceiling is, as soon as you deem that they might be becoming more successful than you. And that is very much the Australian way. Tecrafix says, Moore's focus on yes, here seems more like a name drop rather than actual memory. Ezra Pound, Tom Stoppard, and other luminaries have identified in Propertius the originator of poetry that dedicates itself to what we call today romantic love. Be that as it may, I wonder how much of Moore's self-love we can stomach. Ah, uh, more, 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 more. More like less, am I right? Um, alright. Let us continue, and I think yesterday's uh, reading ended on this. He was a wise man, in fact it did end on this. And the reader will wonder how it was that with such a natural interest in languages... And such excellent opportunities, I did not become a classical scholar. The reader's legitimate curiosity shall be satisfied. And I wonder if he meant immediately, because let's uh, keep reading and find out. Um. <clears throat> oh. I knew that sneeze was coming. Excuse me. It's never just one, so, you know. Sneeze warning, there will be another sneeze. One day Father James said, The time would come when I would give up hunting everything for the classics. There it is. And I rode home elated to tell my mother the prophecy. But she burst out laughing, leaving me in no doubt whatever that she looked upon Father James's idea of me as an excellent joke. And the tragedy of it all is that I accepted her casual point of view without consideration, carrying it almost at once into reality playing truant instead of going excuse me to my Latin lesson 
Father James divested of his scholarship became a mere priest in my eyes. I think that I avoided him and am sure that I hardly ever saw him again except at Mass. A strange old church is Carnacun, built in the form of a cross with whitewashed walls and some hardened earth for floor, and I should be hard set to discover in my childhood an earlier memory than the panelled roof designed and paid for by my father, who had won the Chester Cup some years before. The last few hundred pounds of his good fortune were spent in pitch pine rafters and boards, and he provided a large picture of the crucifixion painted by my cousin Jim Brown, who happened to be staying at Moor Hall at the time. From Tom Kelly, the lodge keeper, the first nude model that ever stood up in Mayo. Mayo has always led the way, Ireland's Van Bird for sure. It was taken in great pomp from Moor Hall to Karnakun, and the hanging of it was a great and punctilious affair. A board had to be nailed at the back, whereby a rope could be attached to hoist it into the roof, and lo, Mikey Murphy drove a nail through one of the gilt leaves which served as a sort of frame for the picture. My father shouted his orders to the men in the roof that they were to draw up the picture very slowly, and lest it should sway and get damaged in the swaying, strings were attached to it. My father and mother each held a string, and the third may have been held by Jim Brown, or perhaps I was allowed to hold it. Sometime afterwards, a blessed virgin and a Saint Joseph came down from Dublin, and they were painted and gilded by my father, and so beautifully that they were the admiration of every one for a very long while. And it was Jim Brown's crucifixion, and these anonymous statues that awakened my first ascetic emotions. I used to look forward to seeing them all the way from Moor Hall to Carnacon, a bleak road, as soon as our gate lodge was passed. On one side a hill that looked as if it had been peeled, on the other some moist fields, divided by small stone walls, liked by me in those days, for they were excellent practice for my pony. Along this road our tenantry used to come from the villages, the women walking on one side, the married women in dark blue cloaks, the girls hiding their faces behind their shawls, carrying their boots in their hands, which they would put on in the chapel yard, the men walking on the other side, the elderly men in traditional swallowtail coats, knee breeches and worsted stockings, the young men in corduroy trousers and frieze coats. <clears throat> As we passed, the women curtsied in their red petticoats, the young men lifted their round bowler hats, but the old men stood by, their tall hats in their hands. At the bottom of every one was a red handkerchief, and I remember wisps of grey hair floating in the wind. Our tenantry met the tenantry of Clocher and Tower Hill, and they all collected round the gateway of the chapel to admire the carriages of their landlords. We were received like royalty as we turned in through the gates and went up the wooden staircase leading to the gallery, frequented by the privileged people of the parish, by us and by our servants, the postmaster and postmistress from Baliglas, and a few graziers. In the last pew were the police, and after the landlords, these were the most respected. <coughs> Excuse me. As soon as we were settled in our pew, the acolytes ventured from the sacristy, tinkling their bells, the priest following carrying the chalice covered with the veil as the ceremony of the mass had never caught my fancy i used to spend my time looking over the pew into the body of the church wandering at the herd of peasantry 
trying to distinguish our own serfs among those from the Tower Hill and Cloger estates. Cloger <coughs> uh, estates. Pat Plunkett, a highly respectable tenant, he owned a small orchard. Orchard. Uh, I could always discover he knelt just under us and in front of a bench. The only one in the body of the church and about him collected those few that had begun to rise out of brutal indignance. Indigence. Their dress and their food were slightly different from the commoner kind. Pat Plunkett and Mikey Murphy, the carpenter, not the sawyer, were supposed to drink tea and eat hot cakes. The other breakfasted off Indian meal porridge. And to Pat Plunkett's bench used to come a tall woman whose grace of body, the long blue black cloak of married life, could not hide. I like to wonder which among the men about her might be her husband, and a partial memory still lingers of a cripple that was allowed to avail himself of Pat Plunkett's bench. His crutches were placed against the wall and used to catch my eye, suggesting thoughts of what his embarrassment would be if they were taken away whilst he prayed. A great unknown horde of peasantry from Balaglass and beyond it knelt in the left-hand corner, and after the communion they came up the church with a great clatter of brogues to hear the sermon leaving behind a hideous dwarf whom I could not take my eyes off, so strange was his waddle as he moved about the edge of the crowd, his huge mouth grinning all the time. Our pew was the first on the right-hand side, and the pew behind us was the Kloger pew, and it was filled with girls, Helena, Livy, Lizzie, and May, the first girls I ever knew, and these are now under the sod, all except poor Lizzie, an old woman whom I sometimes meet, out with her dog by the canal. I, in the first few, on the left, was a red landlord, with a frizzled beard and a perfectly handsome wife, and behind him was Joe MacDonald, from Karanakun House, a great farmer, and the wonder of the church, as so great was his belly. I can see these people, dimly, like figures in the background of a picture. But the blind girl is as clear in my memory as if she were present. She used to kneel behind the Virgin's altar and the communion rails, almost entirely hidden under an old shawl, grown green with age, and the event of every Sunday, at least for me, was to see her draw herself forward when the communion bell rang and lift herself to receive the wafer that the priest placed under her tongue and having received it, she would sink back, overcome, overawed, and I used to wonder at her piety, and think of the long hours she spent sitting by the cabin fire waiting for Sunday to come round, on what roadside was the cabin." And did she come, led by some relative or friend, or finding her way down the road by herself? Questions that interested me more than anybody else, and it was only at the end of the long inquiry that I learned that she came from one of the cabins opposite Carnacoon House. Every time we passed that cabin I used to look out for her, thinking how I might catch sight of her in the doorway, but I never saw her except in the chapel. Only once did we meet, as we drove to Balagras, Groping her way doubtless to Karnakun, where she, where else should would she be going? And hearing our horses' hoofs, she sank closer to the wall, overawed into the wet among the falling leaves. As soon as the communion was over, our father James would come forward and, thrusting his hands under the alb, his favourite gesture, he would begin the sermon in Irish. In those days, Irish was the language of the country among the peasantry, and we would sit for half an hour wondering 
What were the terrible things he was saying, asking ourselves if it were pitchforks or ovens or both that he was talking? For the peasantry were groaning loudly, the women not infrequently falling on their knees, beating their breasts, and I remember being perplexed by the possibility that some few tenantry might be saved, for, if that happened, how should we meet them in heaven? Would they look another way and pass us by without lifting their hats and crying, Long life to your honour? My memories of Karnakun Chapel and Father James Brown were interrupted by a sudden lurching forward of the car, which nearly flung me into the road. Wellen apologised for himself and his horse, and I, but I damned him, for I was annoyed at being awakened from my dream. There was no hope of being able to pick it up again, for the chapel being... Bal was peeling down the empty lane... Landscape, landscape. Calling the peasants from their dissolute villages, it seemed to me that the Kanakun Bal and used to cry across the moist fields where cheerfully there was a menace in the gort bell as there is in the voice of a man who fears that he may not be obeyed. And this gave me an interest in the mass I was going to hear. It would teach me something of the changes that had happened during my absence. The first thing I noticed as I approached the chapel was the smallness of the crowd of men about the gateposts. Only a few figures, and they surly and suspicious fellows, resolved not to salute the landlord, yet breaking away with difficulty from traditional servility, our popularity had disappeared with the laws that favoured us, but Welland's appearance counted for something in the decaying sense of rank among the peasantry, and I mentally reproached Edward for not putting his servant into livery. It interested me to see that the superstitions of Carnican will still be followed. The peasants dipped their fingers in a font and sprinkled themselves, and the only difference that I noticed between the two chapels was one for the worse. The windows at Gort were not broken, and the happy circling swallows did not build under the rafters. It was easier to discover differences in the two congregations. My eyes sought vainly the long dark cloak of married life, nor did I succeed in finding an old man in knee breeches and worsted stockings, nor a girl drawing her shawl over her head. <coughs> In Irish language, sorry, the Irish language is inseparable from these things, I said, and it has gone. The sermon will be in English or in a language as near English as those hats and feathers are near the fashions that prevail in Paris. The Gort peasants seemed able to read for they held prayer books, and as if to help them in their devotion, a harmonium began to utter sounds as discordant as the red and blue glass in the windows. And all the time the mass continued very much as I remembered it, until the priest lifted his alb over his head and placed it upon the altar. Father James used to preach in this vestment, I said to myself, and very slowly and methodically the gaunt priest tried to explain the mystery of transubstantiation to the peasants, who lent such <clears throat> an indifferent ear to him that it was difficult not to think that Father James's sermons based on the fear of the devil were more suitable to Ireland a mass only rememberable for a squealing harmonium, some pains in terrifying blues and reds, and my own great shame. However noble my motive may have been, I had knelt and stood with the congregation. I had even bowed my head, making believe by this parade that I accepted the mass as a truth. It could not be right to do this, even for the sake of the Irish literary theatre, and I left the chapel asking myself by what strange alienation of the brain had Edward come to imagine that a piece of enforced hypocrisy on my part, could be to anyone's advantage. 
It seemed to me that mortal sin had been committed that morning. A sense of guilt clung about me. Edward was consulted. Could it be right for one who did not believe in the Mass to attend Mass? He seemed to acquiesce that it might not be right. But when Sunday came around again, my refusal to get on the car so frightened him that I relinquished myself to his scruples, to his terror, to his cries. The reader will judge me weak, but it should be remembered that he is my oldest friend, and it seemed to me that we should never be the same friends again if I refused, added to which he had been telling me all the week that he was getting on finely with his third act, and for the sake of a hypothetical act I climbed up on the car. Now, <clears throat> Willen, don't delay putting up the horse. Mind you're in time for Mass, and don't leave the chapel until that last gospel has been read. But must we wait for benediction, I cried ironically. Edward did not answer, be- possibly because he did not regard benediction as part of the liturgy, and is therefore more or less indifferent to it. The horse trotted, and Wellen clacked his tongue, a horrible noise, from which I tried to escape by asking him questions. Are the people quiet in this part of the country? Quiet enough, he answered, and I thought I detected a slightly contemptuous accent in the syllables. Not much life in the country. I hear the hunting is going to be stopped. Parnell never told them to stop hunting. You're a Parnellite? He was a great man. The priests went against him, I said, because he loved another man's wife, and O'Shea not living with her at the time. Even it had, if it had been, I answered, Ireland first of all say I, he was a great man. He was that. And the priest at Gord, was he against him? Wasn't he every bit as bad as the others? Then you don't care to go to his church? I'd just as lift stop away. It's strange, Willem. It's strange that Mr. Martin should insist on my going to Gort to Mass. Of what use can Mass be to anyone who doesn't wish to hear it? Wellen chuckled, or seemed to chuckle. He will express no opinion, I said to myself, and abstractions don't interest him. So turning to the concrete, I spoke to the, of the priest who was to say Mass, and Wellen agreed that he had gone again peril. Well, Wellen, it's great waste of time going to Gore to hear a mass one doesn't want to hear, and I have business with Mr. Yeats. Maybe you'd like me to turn into cool, sir. I was thinking we might do that, only you won't speak to Martin about it, will you? Because, you see, Wellen, everyone has his prejudices, and I'm a great friend of Mr. Martin, and wouldn't like to disappoint him. Wouldn't like to contraire him, sir. That's it, Wellen. Now, what about your dinner? You don't mind having your dinner in a Protestant house? It's all one to me, sir. The dinner is the main point, isn't it, Wellen? Begad it is, sir. And he turned the horse in through the gates. Just go round, I said, and put the horse up and say nothing to anybody. Yes, sir. That's going to be it tonight, I think. That's a bit of a longy tonight, this chapter, I should say. So, uh, thanks for listening. Catch you tomorrow.